And welcome to this commentary for the Vinegar Syndrome release of Michael S. O'Rourke's Moonstalker, uh, a very late entry into the 80s slasher sweepstakes, uh, but certainly not one without its charms. We are collectively, the Hysteria Continues, the Slasher Loving Podcast, and uh, thank you as ever to Vinegar Syndrome to invite us back to uh, hopefully give you an informative and fun commentary looking at the behind the scenes. Uh, some interesting stories, some interesting cast stories and backgrounds, and talk about the slasher movie where it was in 1989. Um, I'm Justin Kurzweil. I'm the author of the slasher movie book and the webmaster of Hysteria Lives, and joined by, as ever, by my trusty co-hosts. And uh, Eric, uh, is this, this isn't your first time watching Moonstalker, is it? It's not, no, but I, I was kind of a latecomer to this title, probably only saw it for the first time in the last 10 years. Yeah, it's not one that's been that easy to see. Uh, so again, thank you to the fantastic folks at Vinegar Syndrome for showing uh, some late 80s uh, slashers uh, their love and their dedication to bring it back in the best version possible. So, But Nathan, I'm sure this is one that was a regular at your video store. Um, actually, it wasn't. That's what's uh, unfortunate about it is I, they didn't have this movie at any of the video stores around me when I was growing up. But I read about it in uh, the Golden Movie Retriever book and I realized that it was something that I desperately needed to see. So I uh, tried to hunt it down and I don't think I actually did till the Internet was invented. Okay, right. Well, uh, yeah, we're hopefully shadowing, sort of of throwing some light on Moonstalker. But uh, Joseph, was this one you ever found at your video store? Uh, No, like Nathan, uh, this tape was impossible to locate in my neck of the woods. So I don't really remember the first time I saw the film. But uh, I can say that, you know, for such a forgotten film and so late in the game, it's way better than it has any right to be. And I, and I hope we do the film some justice because, believe me, finding information on this film was like locating Jimmy Hoffa's corpse. Yeah, it's it's funny, isn't it? For a film that's, uh, what, 35 or so years old, uh, you would think you were kind of digging up hieroglyphics in the uh, – in um, trying to find stuff, uh, sort of relics from ancient Egypt – uh, but uh, it's even with the internet, even with all the different research tools we've got going for us, it is actually very difficult to come up with information sometimes on these kind of lesser known slasher movies. And certainly Moonstalker uh, was one of the most difficult or most obscure slashers that I think we've covered. Uh, it certainly didn't, as far as I'm aware, get a video release in the UK uh, where I would have seen it. So I did pick it up. I think I picked up a DVD release uh, sort of 10 or 15 years ago when I reviewed it on Hysteria Lives. Um, but uh, I think it must have been a very rare tape in the US as well. Um, uh, it goes for uh, between $350 and $550. Well, now you can have it for 20 <laughs> Yes, in the, in the best possible uh, version. Um, I think one of the things that's kind of interesting for me about this, and obviously we talk about the late 80s and where the slasher movie was at, um, but certainly um, uh, having sort of looked into it and listened to sort of the comments from cast and crew, uh, and certainly the uh, director, Michael S. O'Rourke, was not a big fan of horror movies necessarily, uh, but as he knew, like many people starting out or looking to make uh, movies, uh, one of the best ways to get funding is horror movies. I mean, they're cheap to make quite often with a no-name cast, and uh, you can you can easily make money on them. Uh, 
So, but from my understanding, and it's kind of interesting to see how this kind of panned out really, uh, that this was intended to be a comedy rather than a horror movie. Now, I say arguably it kind of it kind of bridges that gap. It doesn't turn into a parody, but certainly it's got it would be fair to say it's gonna kind of got a slight John Waters-esque feel to it. Certainly with this um the family being introduced now to who are supposed to be out in the middle of nowhere. Um although if you actually look carefully you can see the cars going on the highway behind them. But uh it's uh, the perils or low budget filmmaking but uh this kind of it's this is where the film for me it kind of really comes out that kind of got that fun fun kind of uh aspect to it it's kind of the cast clearly are having fun with it uh so there's a lightness and a breeziness and a kind of kind of a, a sort of light light touch to it which possibly is missing from other slash movies of the 80s i don't know what you guys think well you were saying john waters it kind of feels a little blake edwards to me Something like um, out of blind date or something. <laughs> Just the way they behave. Yeah, I mean, it's very kind of it's played very broad, isn't it? I mean, I do love yeah. this kind of this idea that this family, uh, the kids wanted to go to Florida and they ended up in Nevada, which of course is where this was filmed. Although, for me, I mean, I'm not a native to the United States. I'm sure you can tell from my accent, but it kind of when I think of Nevada, I think of deserts. Yeah, me too. <laughs> Uh, so, um, uh, so it's kind of uh, it's kind of funny to think. Although I did when I looked up what other horror films were made in Nevada, um, uh, they um, I think Misery was shot there as well. So, uh, if you are a resident of Nevada and know well, please forgive our, our lack of knowledge about geography of that part of the United States. I live in the United States, and even I have never been to Nevada. I hear it's I hear it's very classy, though. Well, it would have to have been well, to be home to Minnesota. I mean, I think the, so maybe some of the, the clues in the, uh, the the approach to the film is the original title, of course, and the title it was filmed under was Camper Stamper, wasn't it? Which is a fantastic alternative title, which from what I, my understanding, it was only ch- changed because they didn't couldn't see how, or they were worried that it wouldn't translate to international audiences. So Moonstalker is a slightly more generic title, although obviously we do get lots of shots yeah. of the moon. Honestly, I think Camper Stamper makes more sense than Moonstalker because he's he's trying to steal the camper. Camper Stamper, I mean, come on. He's not stalking a moon. He's not stamping on them, though. Camper Stamper... Well, stamper uh, is slang for someone who's trying to take something by force. Oh, okay, uh, okay. Yeah. So you could imagine... That if means was, he's taken yeah. their lives by force. Ah, yeah. okay. But you can imagine if there was a slash movie uh, sort of uh, based around Dexter in John Waters' Polyester, where they went around stamping on people's foot, feet, it wouldn't be probably the most <laughs> bloody of movies. But uh, and cha-cha heels, <laughs> cha-chas indeed. But I do love this this family here because they're so. Um, I mean, it has that real kind of eight, late eighties charm, which you certainly. I mean, when you look at films like say Friday Thirteenth or like um, you know the, the movies um, My Bloody Valentine, they're much more kind of based stuck and their characters are less broad aren't they they're more realistic for one of a better term i'm going to say usually kind of you've got your stereotypical jocks kind of um you know that type of those kind of broad characters but by the late 80s everything had got um it, there was a kind of satirical bent to it uh, you're definitely sort of seeing here so i mean if we talk through some of the um the the character or the actors here because this is kind of almost like the scream 
well, it's not quite the screen, but the beginning of the movie, this is kind of like the little vignette um, at the beginning, the uh, uh, movie which lasts for about 20 or 30 minutes, um, as we see this family eventually being killed off one by one in, of course, classic slasher movie uh, fashion. Um, yeah, and that actor there is er- Ernie Abernathy um, playing Harry. Mm. Um, he um, he made a, um, I guess, a little token of appreciation via video for the cast and crew. It's a very interesting. Um, uh, yeah, he's going to give that to them at the rap party. But uh, he was really um, excited to be in this film. I'm not sure if he had done any acting prior. He might have. But um, I think he's very game here. I think he's very animated. Yeah. yeah to I, me, yeah. you can really tell how much fun he's having on the set of this movie because his performance is it's it's really over the top, but it works. Absolutely. Well, he's having a blast with it. There, you know, the kind of behind the scenes footage shows they're all having uh, a blast making this. Um, and I mean, I kind of we said before we came came on, we've done lots of research and looking to sort of try and track down what happened to uh, the, the backstories to the actors and actresses in this. And uh, I, some of them we have to say with a caveat that we, as far as, you know, we know, and I think the same for this character, the Ernest Abernathy was um, in some of uh, the footage from the behind the scenes, uh, they refer to him as Dr. Ernest Abernathy. And uh, uh, I did sort of track down who I think this was, and he was a, uh, a surgeon and a kind of a doctor in Georgia uh, who is now retired. Uh, and apparently he uh, he undertook 7,000 surgeries in his lifetime. So if it's the same person and it very much looks like it is, then this obviously was a kind of a, a kind of a holiday uh, for him being in a horror movie, which, to be honest, for anyone, including myself, that sounds like the perfect uh, holiday for me. Well, if that is the same person, um, he, didn't he pass away this month or in July? He could have done. I don't know. I know. Yeah. He, no, that was that not the, the was that not pop? Pops, or whatever his name is, who's driving that car now that we see. Is that not that actor? He, well, I think if we're talking about, um, if sort of mention the, uh, is Tom Hamill who plays Pop or Pops, who, uh, again, it doesn't last that long in the movie, uh, has a pivotal role though. Um, he, uh, he passed away in July this year at the age of 94. Oh, I got those mixed up. I'm sorry. That's okay. Well, he's kind of, yeah, he passed away at the age of 94. So, um, uh, in July 2022, in case you're listening to this a little bit later than that, um, he had a really interesting career that he was um, uh, he was kind of referred to his friends as an artist, an actor, a clown, a puppeteer and a prop maker, an activist uh, and uh, author and a costumer. A costumer. So he was an all-round uh, entertainer and artist. Um, in the mid-70s, he was actually quite well-known as a, um, an author and a children's book illustrator. So, uh, but he did, he had a, num- had a number of uh, sort of um, uh, kind of short, shortish career in the mid-late 1980s uh, in, uh, in sort of exploitations, horror, sci-fi, sort of inverted commas, trash movies. And of course, say trash in the, uh, the best possible way because we love trash. Um, films like Lady Avenger in 1988, so made uh, just shortly before this. So yeah, he sounded like a really interesting character. So, uh. And the mother here is, uh, well, the character of Vera is, uh, well, she's credited as Jolene Troop. 
but her real name is Jolene Mullins. She's also in Slashdance, um, but nowadays, her, her, along with her husband, they're children's uh, party, birthday party entertainers, and they also do a similar type of thing for the old folks in the old folks' home. So they're still in the ent- entertainment industry of sorts. So they're married in real life, Eric? No, 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 sorry, her, her husband um, in real life, not her husband on screen here. Okay, okay. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, so she's... Uh, I. It, she's actually playing a little bit older in uh, in this than yes, she... Yes, uh, because in that behind-the-scenes footage, she, she almost seems like she's the same age as uh, Kelly Mollis, who plays her daughter. Yes, yeah. So, and, uh, yeah, it's... Uh, they, 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 always, they look like they're having a lot of fun in that behind-the-scenes footage. So, uh, as I say, it's kind of... It, you know what you imagine the the fun they would have had um on these early 80s slash movies and certainly some a lot of the ones who looked into the uh, the um the background of them uh certainly with a young a young cast uh, i'm sure there's many more stories to come out about the the fun in fact actually apparently uh the the, the cast and crew who talked about this said there were some behind the scenes romances going on but they kept tight lip about them so you're gonna have to guess who was who was getting off with who well, I think if you watch some of that background footage, um, especially when they're partying and they're, um, they're the actor who uh, I think we mentioned him, was it um, Pops? He was dancing around to ZZ Top and he did a strip tease. And um, I think if you watch that footage, you can see some of them kind of hanging off of one another. It's very funny footage. You know, seeing that old man strip tease to Tush by ZZ Top, by the way. <laughs> yes, yes, indeed. So, um, I mean, the other to, to round out the uh, the cast here, uh, you have uh, Kelly Mullis as Tracy, who is the kind of the the, the kind of typical rolling her eyes uh, teenage girl who uh, who uh, had some kind of int- fun behind the scenes stories herself. That uh, she said that uh, when she went to the audition, uh, she was so nervous that she broke the toilet at the audition. Now she didn't say how she broke it. I don't <laughs> think so. I don't know if she blocked it. Um, or just broke it, but uh, uh, and I think this was her first movie. Uh, so when she turned up to set, there were three feet of snow there, and but she's wearing high pink heel shoes, so had to be carried uh, across to the trailer. So wasn't quite prepared. Um, and I was going to say off the top, if we are repeating anything else that's on this disc, please forgive us because we don't know in advance uh, what the other extras are going to be. So we're trying to bring you as much information as we can and as much commentary as you can. So I hope you in- enjoy that. But uh, but yeah, I enjoy. I really enjoy her performance in this because she's kind of that. It's a shame in a lot of ways uh, she doesn't pop up in the final reel. Because, mm, I mean, I suppose one of the surprising things about Moonstalker is that uh, it kills off this family after 25 minutes because it looks like it's setting up maybe Kelly um, or Tracy, sorry, the character she's playing uh, to be the final girl, it's kind which of, um, she is not. It's kind of like the hills have eyes. You expect to follow this family through uh, the, the duration of the film, but you don't. It, that is quite shocking. But um, I was going to mention that, uh, we're, you know, we're seeing nighttime scenes here and most of the film was shot at night. And um, apparently there were some Nevada residents hearing the production at all hours. And um, I think a few of them may have lodged some complaints with the police, but uh, I'm not sure what came of it. Maybe the cops were, you know, glad to see a movie being shot there. Who knows? And here we're meeting Bernie, who I think has a very interesting look here which uh, is dispensed of in, in about 10 minutes' time. But I think the 
the kind of it's a variation of Jason's sack that he used in um, Friday the Thirteenth Part Two. It's a very um, sinister kind of look, I suppose. Um, I'm just wondering, was there were they tempted to keep this look for the killer for the duration? Obviously, they couldn't because he's supposed to integrate. I don't know with the campers. I, I, this is you know this is one of the biggest disappointments for me is because. Um, He's wearing a mask, and I love when killers wear a mask, and they take that off, and they put him under that stupid, like, Stetson, and he just kind of loses that mystique to him. Yeah, well, I suppose because the story requires him to integrate with the, the wilderness campers that uh, he needs to be looking, quote, normal. Yeah. With his mirror, mirror, mirrored shades at night. Yeah. How normal Understand is that? Understand why he's wearing a mask to begin with, because he's not deformed. I mean, he just looks like a normal person. I don't. I think Pops is one biscuit short of a packet, though. So maybe that's the reason. Could <laughs> be. The other thing oh, I was going to mention, Prince. say about uh, Kelly Mullis. I mean, she said, uh, I say, she had a lot of fun on this movie. Uh, she got paid. If you wondered what actors and actresses got paid uh, for their participation in late eighties slasher movies, uh, she said she got paid fifty dollars a day for her role here, which I can't imagine she was on set for that long. Um, no, the whole shoot was 11 days, so I'd say she was gone after maybe day three or four. So that's a nice tidy 150 or $200. Gosh, yes. So, um, but she, uh, just as what she went on to, I mean, she actually went on to uh, a relatively successful career uh, in films like How I Met Your Mother um, and TV. And uh, she was in an episode of NYPD Blue. Uh, she also went on to be a, uh, an artist as well. Uh, and uh, she kind of went on to, from Moonstalker, uh, she went on to perform Shakespeare and the classics. Uh, she said her acting method was uh, Strasbourg and John Cassavetes. So I think she obviously took her career in acting maybe a slightly more seriously uh, than, than this. Um, she went on also to be in uh, Bo- the film Born, B-O-R-N. Uh, I think it's Body Organ Replacement Network it stands for. It has uh, PJ Souls in it. So she was joining up with some slasher alumni there. Okay, okay, interesting. Well, she, she, um, she's also done stand up as well, which I think kind of you can tell with like the, uh, the comedy. She says whether or not she's doing stand up, and she compared herself. But she said she compared herself to a cross between Margot Robbie, Charlize Theron, Rosanna Arquette, Leslie Mann, and Marilyn Monroe. So I'm not sure if we get any of that from a performance in Moonstalker, but uh, for a first performance, it's certainly not bad. You know, for her sneaking off here, I totally understand the reason why. Just saying, you know, that's what you know her character needed at that point in time to deal with the stress. It's a very astute observation, there, Nathan. It is. Thank you. But it's not the best thing uh, to be doing in a slasher movie, is it? No, especially like going off into the woods on your own and putting on your Walkman. I mean, hello. And drinking and doing drugs. Yes. She's she's breaking all kinds of rules there. Yeah, well, what if, Eric, she was listening to Toya? Okay, well, then I can forgive her. <laughs> and she's, she's a goner. But um, it's interesting <laughs> that, I mean, uh, obviously, Vanessa Syndrome have brought us the uncut version of the movie to the best of their abilities and always do a fantastic job with it. But for some reason, there's um, there were uh, shots done and maybe the footage got lost. I don't know. But in these murder sequences coming up, there were some behind the scenes prosthetics, certainly the, the death of the father. Uh, the, you see like a, um, quite a 
kind of quite a sort of um, complicated kind of axe wound sort of um, prosthetic, uh, which doesn't appear in the movie. And also there's, uh, there's um, we're coming up, there's uh, a scene where uh, Bernie uh, breaks into the caravan or the mobile home, I should say, uh, and uh, smashes through the window, which again isn't in this finished cut of the movie. Now, and my understanding is that when the um, uh, in previous releases, when there's been uh, some of the cast and crew have done a commentary and talked about the movie, they've expressed surprise that some of these things were missing. So, I, you know, unfortunately, so this happens, especially with low budget filmmaking around the time. If it's not shot properly, or there's something goes goes wrong with the sound or whatever, um, uh, it sort of footage isn't isn't used, unfortunately. Could yeah, it have been the MPAA because of the gore, maybe. I don't think so. Well, certainly not, unless the MPAA have got a real thing about breaking windows. I don't imagine this thing was submitted to the MPAA. <laughs> That's a joke there. But uh, yeah, that, that scene you're talking about with the axe to the chest that we don't really get to see. Um, the actor playing Harry, our Ernest Abernathy, he kept breaking character and making jokes due to the excessive amount of time it took to shoot that sequence. Um, they had a tube run through the bottom of the latex to pump the fake, bl- the fake blood, and the axe was shot in reverse at half speed, and the uh, combination of these effects took uh, considerable time and effort to perfect, and uh, the blood wasn't pooling correctly in several shots, and after a while, the director had to remind um, Ernest that he was, you know, quote-unquote dead, because he just kept joking around. Yeah, there's kind of the the one thing they have kept in is the um, the kind of really very effective kind of um, severed head scene. Even though when you actually find out, uh, it will be coming up shortly. Uh, but in fact, actually, it's just the actor with some black material wrapped around his neck. But it's such it's shot in such a way that it actually looks quite effective. Oh yeah, it's it's it stood out to me as well that that moment. Yeah. Well, it's amazing, isn't it? What you can do with, uh, you know, a bit of ingenuity and a kind of low budget. So, uh, uh, and what we didn't, haven't mentioned actually, of course, is her brother as well, is Ron K. Colley, uh, who plays Mikey, um, who, do we actually get to see him killed on screen? I'm not sure if we do. I don't think we do, no. No, no we don't. Because you also see in the, um, uh, you also see there's some prosthetics on him with a kind of, his. it looks like he's had his neck cut from like long ways. Uh, from his cheek down to his chest um, but the actor was in a number of things including uh, NYPD Blue although I don't think he was uh, paired with uh, uh, with Kelly Mullis but uh, yeah so Pops unfortunately that is Pops has popped with the microwave in his hand so that's the last we see of him for a while anyway that's the top of the Pops there for you <laughs> yes <laughs> Now, I thought it was kind of interesting, though, sort of saying about um, one of the challenges of filming in the snow is something you don't really think about, is it? But they sort of saying that, uh, you know, if you've got virgin snow, which we, we have here, that you have to, when you light it, um, you don't want lots of footprints all over it with people setting shots up. So you've got to shoot around that, uh, which I thought was kind of interesting, uh, the challenges you would have. Because um, I think from um, what they're saying, it say it was a low-budget movie. I think it was a budget was what $125,000 which is a particularly low kind of budget um and i think well, they even, mm. in 1988 I, that would probably be about 300 grand so i mean it's still pretty low but you know for what they do here i'd say that's that's about adequate mm. Well, they certainly didn't uh spend any money on the wilderness councillors uh gather here sign did they 
No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But uh, mm. so well, we're introduced here to uh, Joe Below. Uh, who is uh, a mysterious character, isn't he? Uh, well, not a mysterious character. He's, a, he's an actor that seems to have vanished off the face of the earth. I don't know if you guys, apart from the other, he had a, a brief but a kind of fiery uh, kind of career in uh, horror and exploitation movies in the mid to late 80s, uh, and then sort of just seemed to sort of vanish. I don't know if you guys found anything else out about him. No, apart from the fact that I would recognize him from such classics as Hollywood's New Blood, um, Andy Milligan's Monstrosity, and uh, ones that, the ones that actually are good, Hitcher in the Dark and um, Black Demons, which are two Umberto Lenzi movies. But uh, no, I couldn't find anything out, out about him. And I'd love to know more because, as you said, he's, he was in a string of horror movies and he's just disappeared ever since. Yeah, and he has like a you know an unusual last name, so you think you'd find something, but yeah. the only thing you're only thing you're going to find is his filmography. Yeah, he kind of sort of disappeared uh, by the uh, the late nineteen eighties. Apparently, uh, Umberto Lenzi, and if you've ever seen any interviews with the uh, the old rascal of Italian horror cinema, he um, he was he wasn't shy in coming forward if you didn't like something or somebody. And apparently hated most of the cast on Black Demons, especially the uh, the female lead who's made her life a misery allegedly. Uh, but he actually liked Joe Below. Uh, so, um, so the film I think Black Demons filmed in Brazil, wasn't it? And then uh, Hitcher in the Dark was in Virginia. Yeah, it was an American movie, yeah, American set movie, I should say. Uh, we also saw Alex Wexler there, who plays um, Bobby. Uh, he sadly passed away from cancer in in 2016, but he went on to a career in real estate and he did, um, he kept the acting thing going with uh, sort of stage stuff locally. He did a, he wrote a musical called Lost in Hollywoodland that was quite well reviewed. Um, oh, there's that severed head effect, which is pretty darn good. Pretty good, yeah. It is good. I liked it. You know, this actor here is uh, Ken Haynes, who... Uh, went on to a career on The Bold and the Beautiful. Um, and I actually watched him on that show for a very long time, and I had no idea that he was in Moonstalker. So that was amazing to me. And if I can rewind a bit to the to the first two people who were killed at the very start, they're in, only in they're only in the uh, film for milliseconds, really. The two the couple killed in the camper van pre credits. Um, the girl is played by Kelly. Uh, O'Rourke, who is the daughter of the director, and the boy was played by a chap called Michael Capalupo. Now, I couldn't find out anything interesting about him, apart from the fact that he was once married to Leah Pinsett, who played Nan in April Fool's Day. So, mm. lots of connections. Separation. connections, indeed. I thought it was it was interesting. It was mentioned about Alex Wexler, who, uh, as you said, he was kind of a, a short career uh, with movies, and then went on to he did a lot of charity work. But because he he kind of very much plays that very stereotypical kind of not exactly jock, but this kind of sex obsessed uh, wilderness counselor. Um, but he was actually gay in real life, uh, and mm. uh, so he's kind of very much playing against type. But he does it very well coming across here as this kind of a bit of a sleazeball with a with a heart of gold. We just don't see that heart of gold until later in the film. Mm. It's masked under, you know, this facade of... Yeah, this por- Porky's facade he has, yeah. Yeah. 
Well, it's funny, isn't it? Even by the late 1980s, uh, the kind of the, the spec, not spectre, but the shadow of Porky's and Meatballs and all of those kind of um, sort of teen sex movie type or com- sex, sex comedies, I should say, still kind of threw uh, kind of very long shadow over the sub genre throughout the 80s, right up until up until this point. So, uh, I mean, I think they're kind of hedging their bets, really, weren't they? Uh, it's interesting. And, and also, we'll just be introduced here to, uh, which I, I think is from the off, you can tell this is going to be our inverted commas final girl. It's uh, mm. sort of Jill Fours as Debbie, who uh, kind of, for me, kind of comes across as a bit of that kind of Amy Steele in Friday 13th Part 2 kind of character, kind of no nonsense, but again, with a heart of gold. Yeah, but an inability to keep her feet on a frozen river. That, that's one of my favourite scenes where she... She falls, was yes. warned. She was warm, but she she falls into like half an inch of um, of water, even of though it's meant, yeah. meant to be like this raging torrent. But uh, yeah, well, I'm sure we'll get to that. But uh, but uh, yeah, well, this is this is curtains for, for uh, Kelly Mullis uh, coming up here. Um, I think she said that um, she didn't, she kind of, uh, she, uh, she ran, uh, she actually kind of ran into the camera. It's kind of very simple but effective kind of filmmaking, low-budget filmmaking here. Uh, I did see like a humorous thing where somebody asked her why she didn't run off the road um, in rather than just running down the road. Sure, you said surely if you've been chased by a psychotic killer in a truck, you just you just step off the road, um, which. As we know, that's what you should do. But of course, in uh, yeah, run into the trees. He can't go in past the trees. Yeah, she but, was just too terrified to think, you know, logically in that moment. Yeah, uh, very possibly, very possibly. Yeah, it's, it's very easy for you to stand there and judge Joseph, but she was terrified. She has a uh, family and loved ones, and they're all no, dead. she don't, not anymore. And they're all dead. <laughs> <laughs> she had. Mm. Now it's interesting, sort of like the the killers um, get up here because it kind of reminded me of the uh, the killers get up in Death Valley from 1982, which is kind of like I think the only other psycho cowboy uh, I can think of. Yeah, we're seeing we're we're essentially seeing two slasher films here. You have the um, the opening moments with that family and getting killed by the hooded version of the killer, and then it just switches to. I guess these other are they campers? I don't know, but um, yeah, they're wilderness survival camp. Um, yeah, counselors. Mm. And then he's just a completely different killer. So it's like two slasher movies in one. But I prefer that opening with the family. You know, when he when he dons the stetson and then we meet these characters. You know, I still like it, but I don't think it's as powerful, in my opinion. It's 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 funny. I mean, it's very much kind of uh, you could argue this is Friday Thirteenth in the snow, with the camp counselors, uh, uh, which is not a bad thing. I mean, I think the kind of kind of snowy waste is a perfect place to have a slasher movie. And I'm sure when we you know when we're a little bit later we talk about some other horror slasher movies that have been you know used that kind of that setting. Well, I was thinking about the snow and um, how how much I used to love a lot of those snowbound slasher settings and stuff. But the more I think about it, the more I don't like it because characters have to bundle up so we don't get to see much spandex or anything like that. It's just like giant coats. And Eric, Eric will agree with me here. Yes, the fashions are relegated to, to coats, really. Yes, and, and it's hats. very muted. Yeah. It's muted. I don't want it to be muted. Mm. 
Apart from Ingrid, Ingrid Vold's um, bikini, <laughs> well, yes. uh, camouflage bikini, which we'll come on <laughs> a little bit later. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how good the heating system is in those tents, but mm, I don't know if I'd be stripping down to a bikini. Well, they said, wasn't it, that this was literally, I mean, you can tell it would be, it would have been freezing. Although I, I think it must have been very difficult with the um, continuity with the snow, because you're, on one hand, you got uh, Kelly Mullis running across this virgin snow, which is very quickly turning to, to slush. Uh, as the the film goes along, and by the end of the film, it's gone almost completely, isn't it? So uh, you know you you can't you can't play God with nature, uh, obviously. But I think the the um, from my understanding, I mean, it was incredibly cold. Uh, you know, it was minus six degrees at night. Uh, so the, for the cold of uh, the crew, uh, cold, and of course, you know, being a slasher movie, uh, although there's not really much in the way of nudity in this. There's a little bit with Pamela Ross, who was in Sorority House Massacre, uh, you know, a blink and you miss it, like a millisecond of, of nipple. But um, it, it must have been incredibly uncomfortable for them to do these kind of um, uh, kind of uh, sort of light sex scenes in uh, minus six degrees at night. That's um, Celsius, folks. Yeah. Not Fahrenheit. We don't do Fahrenheit over here. No, I'm trying to be American for the day. <laughs> don't. Okay, I won't. But uh, <laughs> but I think there was some discussion about when this was actually filmed. I think some of the it it's from some people thought it was the winter, uh, the end of 1987, but it seems a consensus it was filmed in February of 1988. Well, I would say that at least the opening family stuff was filmed in January. Of 1988, because um, there's there's moments where uh, Ernie's out into uh, the city of Reno and he's um, you know you know sightseeing and there's signs of uh, red buttons and Hal Linden performing concurrently and then uh, just across the way at the Hilton we have the infamous boxing match between Mike Tyson and Larry Holmes, which was in January of uh, 1988. So I think they were shooting in January, probably into February, I'd say. Okay, interesting. Oh, well, it's good to be there sort of a time. But certainly it was around uh, around that kind of time. And I think you mentioned there was um, uh, there was uh, kind of uh, some mostly professional actors and a lot of them sort of shipped in from L.A. Uh, but uh, there were some like kind of some local areas. I mean, there's a couple of characters in here that I could find nothing on at all who are kind of literally a blink and you'll miss it kind of, you know, for a, a light sex scene and then they're gone. Um but I think this is kind of filmed around, wasn't it filmed around a bed and breakfast um, sort of area? Yeah, I think it was called Washoe Valley, uh, Nevada. It's just right outside of uh, Reno. Like it's technically considered Reno, but it's like a camping uh, area per se. It's, I think. Uh, it's Willow Creek Lodge Ranch Inn is, yeah. the, is what's credited as at the end of the film. Which is sort of halfway. I, I looked it up on Google Maps, and it's sort of half looks to be halfway between Reno and Carson City. Now, this actress here, I think, is is it Susie Jessup? Yes, who spells her name uh, with a Z, so Susie. So, like a like a bit like, of course, Susie Sue, but not quite spelled like that. But presumably. Uh, that's what she was looking uh, to to go for. She didn't. I don't think she had much of a career uh, as an actress. Um, uh, she did. Um, she was in a few other things. She was in the a little bit after this. She was in a film called Dying Time in 1990, and she was also in The Prophecy in 1995. 
Um, but uh, she went on to uh, be uh, like a freelance entertainment writer in LA. So again, based out of LA. Uh, and also, uh, she did a lot of kind of, uh, sort of TV kind of, um, uh, she did like, uh, I think, uh, the traffic news, uh, sort of things, things like that. So, uh, so yeah, so, I mean, she's again, it's a bit of a blink and you'll miss it kind of appearance. Uh, they'd obviously the, um, the director, I say he wasn't a fan of horror movies or slasher movies. In fact, I think he had like a, his, his main interest from my understanding, I mean, he had a military background. I think he was in Vietnam. And of course, have we mentioned he passed away, I think the age of 60 in uh, 2001. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, probably a bit like Herb Freed when he made Graduation Day, when he infamously um, uh, got the stopwatch and actually sat down and watched slasher movies and timed uh, the time between each murder, uh, I imagine that uh, he kind of like, you know, sort of watched a lot of slash movies and picked out what, what worked. And of course, one of the things that works and one of the things that would encourage people to rent movies would be this kind of light nudity and these kind of light sex scenes. Um, and it certainly doesn't go, it's certainly not a, a gratuitous movie in the way of gore or nudity at all, is it? No. His uh, his his other film before he uh, made Moonstalker was one called Deadly Love from 1987, and uh, Joseph, if you're looking for 80s fashions, that's the one to go for because the lead actress has the biggest bubble perm I think I've ever seen. Oh, um, mm. yeah. But, didn't you uh, mention that it, it's 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 well, let's just say okay. It's okay. It's, I mean, as a first effort, you have to give them kudos for what they've achieved. Um, it's kind of a supernatural revenge story, but uh, it is a bit slow. Is it's, it's its main problem, but the technical aspects are quite good on it. But uh, you were saying he worked, he, he had a background in the military. Yeah, he also, uh, Michael O'Rourke did, um, he worked on the film or the, or the TV show That's Incredible. If you remember that um, from the early eighties, uh, doing reconstructions of you know uh, supernatural type events or whatever the the show was necessitated, uh, and he also did m- uh, medical films as well. I'm assuming for for training for medical students, probably. So he won an award for a hip replacement um, film he made. Not many people can say that. <laughs> no, indeed, indeed. I think um, that that film that he made, I think he the uh, it it was sold or it was um, it was enthusiastically received by a distributor in the United Kingdom, uh, who I think uh, gave them the money to make this. He kind of basically wanted a twofer, so he wanted another movie uh, to kind of complement that one. Yeah, I think what happened was Deadly Love was kind of unfinished when they went to him. And he gave them the funds to finish off the film and also then to do Moonstalker, yeah. I mean, the irony is, of course, that if that was the case, I mean, Moonstalker, as far as I'm aware, unless it got a very obscure release in the United Kingdom, didn't get a release there. Um, but uh, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm sure we talk a little bit more about the kind of the release or lack of of this movie. And I say, you know, when I was when I was looking at obscure slasher movies uh and sometimes you had to you know had to go buy them from abroad you know i had to get used to get um get dutch uh, v- vhs releases of films that hadn't been released in uk or i couldn't get hold of so back in the day as a slasher movie fan trying to unearth unearth um uh, kind of lesser known slasher movies from the 80s uh certainly moonstalker was one of those ones that was going kind to of whispered about as a kind of a bit of a rarity 
So again, it's fantastic to see uh, it. And again, I I've seen reviews online where people don't like this movie, but I just kind of I just think it's for me. It's it's okay. It's not Halloween. It's not Friday the Thirteenth, but it is a lot of fun. Uh, it does have that sense of fun about it. Um, it's a kind of a, you know it's funny to use the terminology breezy, but it feels like it's all like a breezy slasher movie. So I'm glad in a way they didn't go for right an out and out uh, comedy with it because I don't think that would have worked. One thing I can say is that I was all, I'd always seen this uh, film. Um, on like copies of, of VHS, like I had, I got one off of Alt Horror, which was a copy, and so the quality was terrible. But um, seeing it in this kind of cleaned up print, it, it it's just it's a different movie, and I'm I'm so I'm so thankful for that. Absolutely. And did no. you did you see? So I was going to mention just while we were on this cabin and all those. I mean that this that classic kind of thing of the killer trying to choose which kind of implement of murder he or she's going to use of kind of like. Uh, it's almost like that kind of Dario Gento art um, uh, kind of type thing of the killer choosing which knife to pull out of the box. Uh, I did I did hear that all of those um, implements, sharp implements, were actually on the wall of the uh, bed and breakfast, which kind of takes me back to um, the kind of horror hotel, uh, kind of uh, the insane asylum that had battle axes on the wall, uh, the Klaus Kinski yeah. movie, which kind of always <laughs> make me chuckle. Well, they do that. They do that kind of conceit in um, Scream from 1981, where the uh, the unseen presence kind of examines the weapons on the wall, and he goes for the scythe or the axe. Yeah, and I think this movie might have been inspired by it. I've got this in my notes. Oh, I think that they were inspired by that wall scene in Scream, because there's even an axe hanging up in Scream, exactly like the way the axe was hanging on the wall in Moonstalker. That's got to mean something. Very possibly, yes. <laughs> what do you guys think of this character, Regis? Like him and his girlfriend, is it Marcy? I think it is. Yeah. I think they are two of the more memorable characters in this movie. Well, they're kind of like um, a late 80s kind of uh, sort of director video Hitler and Eva Braun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that right, sums them up nicely. They kind of remind me of the um, oh, what's his name um, in um, Memorial Valley Massacre, the the couple in the RV, um, Bill Smith, and uh, whoever played the girl, his girlfriend. They they're kind of that uh, not paramilitary, but kind of they think they're military. They remind me of that couple. What did he kill them with? It looks like shears, a bit like the um, the death scene in Friday Thirteenth Part uh, Five. Yeah, they look more like tongs, like you'd use to remove a block from the fire. Or maybe it's true, like or like for hot dogs. Yeah, he God only knows what. Yeah, God only knows what he pulled off. Two characters tonged to death. Add that to your uh, body counts on your website, Justin. Yes, maybe I should. Now watching it in a cleaned up version, so. Mm. I mean, what we haven't spoken about, of course, yet is the the actual killer, Bernie, the killer, which is kind of a strange. I kind of get. I guess it's kind of a slightly comedic name for a killer. Is it Bernie? Doesn't really strike fear into into you, but uh, uh, the actor is uh, Blake Gibbons, who uh, and I, I read this fascinating tidbit that he he um, worked with Quentin Tarantino as an Elvis impersonator in an episode of the Golden Golden Girls. Yep, he he did. Wow. 
that's uh, something to have on your CV. Yeah, he's um he's pretty famous over here for I think it's General Hospital. Um, he was on there for a long time playing a bartender, but I'll, I'm always going to remember him on the episode of Seinfeld where Jerry um, is is dating Amanda Pete, and she just so happens to be dating Blake Gibbons as at the same time, and Jerry's all weirded out about it, and so Blake Gibbons just kind of walks around in the apartment wearing a towel, and it's just uh, he's like, "Hey, Jerry, how's it going?" And um, he's actually a really good dramatic actor too. He was in an episode of Dexter. Uh, he's a certified Dexter victim. Um, playing a white supremacist and um he he had a really good scene opposite jimmy smiths who was uh the uh guest star for that season and uh he's he's really good dramatically so um you know it's good that he went on to have a pretty fulfilling career from the looks of it yeah because he was on um days of our lives and young and the restless as well so he's just, uh, he's a glutton for punishment with those punishing schedules that those soap operas have yeah, he was the he was in the Golden Girls episode the year that he made this, I think nineteen eighty eight, um, and also the the Elvis um, connection. He went on to there was a miniseries in nineteen ninety called Elvis, uh, and he played one of Elvis's backing bands. All right, and is is Quentin Tarantino in this episode of the Golden Girls as well? Apparently, from what I've read, he is oh. is one. He's an Elvis impersonator. I'm gonna have to see. I'm gonna have to seek that one out. <laughs> Indeed. So, um, but I mean, he's really game in this, isn't he? I mean, he's kind of. I you know, I agree that it would have been good to have had uh, kept the that kind of that strange kind of uh, kind of insane sort of straitjacket type whatever it was that mask, which I don't think I've never seen a mask like that before. Uh, it kind of looks like what a child would draw if they if you ask them to draw what someone looks like in an insane asylum. It looks like a carnival barker or something like chained up. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, that was, I mean, so, but I suppose at least with this, you do get to see a bit more of his face, although he doesn't do a great deal of emoting. I mean, he's definitely playing that kind of silent um, hulking killer, which is a bit ironic considering that when he's in the mask, he's actually like a raving lunatic. And when he's playing, he's in the um, the cowboy uh, outfit, he's becomes this kind of silent, deadly killer, like almost like akin to something like Yul Brynner in uh, Westworld, who also played, who arguably I did hear was the inspiration of Michael Myers in Halloween, that kind of silent, deadly, uh, sort of um, shark-like creature that just won't stop coming for you. Yeah, and uh, Blake Gibbons, he's, he looks like he's such a ham behind the scenes because there's that one, they had the, um, they were doing, a, I guess they were in some kind of hotel or something, they're having a party, and it's that part where he was uh, strip-teasing uh, to uh, ZZ Top, and he's just, uh, he's in total character as this preacher, you know, lecturing on the uh, the evils of Hollywood, and it's very funny, and they're all drinking beer, and he's trying to pour beer on one of the actresses, it's just, uh, it, it looks like it's a really good time. Yes. I know. I wish I worked on this movie, but I was only eight. But you know, the, I could have been a little kid victim. I mean, or a, a gopher, <laughs> not not yeah. like a, not a little creature. But I mean, you could have been running around getting people beers. Oh well, that wouldn't have been as much fun. No. But I mean, this is... we're seeing Pamela Ross here. Is that what you're about to say, Justin? Sorry. No. So go, go ahead. I was going to. I was just going to mention very quickly. We will come back to it about this kind of Friday Thirteenth Part Two. It's again that kind of the burning madman, all of those kind of campfire things we're seeing here. But yeah, talk about. Let's talk about a little bit about Pamela Ross. Well, 
for me, she kind of stands out in the film because, you know, her only other role, I think, was as Sarah in Sorority House Massacre. Now, that was a film that I was quite snooty about and I reviewed it for Hysteria Lives and uh, I gave it kind of a scathing review. But I've grown to love it over the years and she's one of the stars in it. Uh, for me, she she really shines because she gets to say the immortal line, let's eat Melanie's ice cream, which um, I just love that line of dialogue. And I think she's great. And she's, she's got that sort of bubbly charm in this as well. And it's just a shame again that she's, you know, axed from the film, you know, after only being on screen for about 10, 15 minutes. Yeah, she's an interesting character because, again, I've been trying to find out what where she is, what happened to her. We'll probably find out she's turned up on an interview on the disc. But um, there is a Pamela Ross who is a classical pianist who was very, uh, well, very well known in the uh, late 1990s or mid-1990s uh, and uh, who looks as a dead ringer for Pamela Ross, but that may, well, they both have the same name and they look identical. But is it the same person? I don't know. They seem to have vanished from that as well. So, uh, you know, if that is the case, then it possibly is the only uh, slasher movie actress who went on to be a classical, classical pianist. And if she, if that was the same Pamela Ross, then good on her. She's one of the few people on this film who didn't end up doing an episode of NYPD Blue. Yes, indeed. Because um, John Marzilli, who plays Regis, was in an episode of that as well, along with everyone else, it seems. Yeah, maybe someone who worked on this was uh, went on to be a casting agent in that. Well, um, the producer on this, whose name is John... Can you help me out there, Justin? Jo- John, sorry, Streisick. He um, was working on the Tales from the Dark Side TV series in the late 80s, and a number of people on this film worked with him on that including John Marzilli he was in quite a few episodes of that wasn't he I think mm. yeah I mean they are kind of very interesting kind of character uh, the, these two aren't they the uh, it's kind of it's it's almost I think it's like the kind of this is where the comedy element really comes to play uh, it's it's got those uh, kind of I kind of remember sort of being, you know, as a kid in the early early mid eighties, or as well actually mid eighties, and hiring horror movies, and they'd have all these trailers for these kind of teenage sex comedies at the beginning of them, and they'd always have something that kind of a bit outrageous, or these kind of really quirky characters in the trailers, and it kind of reminds me of uh, of, of of those, although. Um, uh, you know, they the both of them come a cropper in uh, quite uh, uh, gruesome ways. You know, going back to Joe Below here, um, I, Eric mentioned earlier that one of his other movies was Hollywood's New Blood, and I actually rewatched that today just to get an idea of you know another early '80s low budget slasher he had been in. Um, and you know, he's actually pretty good in it, and I think he's good here as well. Um, in Hollywood's New Blood, he learns the importance of pine cones, which, as we all know, is extremely important. In that award-winning scene, um, is he? The, remind me, because uh, it's been a while since I watched how Hollywood's New Blood. Is he um, the lead in it? No, oh. he's uh, he he gets he's one of the people that gets killed. He gets tied to a tree, and um, they well, I think they're supposed to skin him, but we only see like one little thing of skin. You know, right. they they hold up and kind of dangle for, you know, hey, here's your skin, uh, kind of thing. Yeah, because he's kind of the lead here-ish, 
Although he does get off in the end. But uh, he's definitely the lead in Hitcher in the Dark. And I think Black Demons, he's the lead as well. He plays his dick, isn't he? Um, Black Demons, I think. <laughs> but that's, that's, that's his name. <laughs> that's his character's name, Dick. But uh, but just take it back to... Um, oh, actually, here we go. This is the, the scene. It's kind of, I kind of... I mistook her for um, Linear Quigley. That's exactly... I, I was thinking like Linnea Quigley in Night of the Demons when in this scene here in particular. Yeah, again, she's an interesting character. I mean, she's... I tried to look look her up. I mean, her name is kind of Norwegian. And I found uh, a number of people with the same... with that name, but were from Norway. So... But she doesn't sound Norwegian, uh, I would say. But again, she had... She had a kind of a, kind of a relatively brief... Um, uh, but fruitful career in kind of low budget sort of Hollywood thrillers uh, such as Dead End City, Hell on, Hell on the Battleground and uh, Terror in Beverly Hills with Frank Stallone, which of course, you know, is always going to be a, a sign of a quality picture. Um, but uh, I couldn't find anything else about her apart from perhaps uh, she um, she hasn't acted since 1995. But there was an Ingrid Vold who uh, was uh, exhibiting as an artist in L.A. Uh, in the early 2000s. So I kind of guess that very possibly could have been been hers. But um, I do wonder if that I know I was, when I said about the Hitler and Eva Braun, although and it's kind of bad taste. But the fact is, that I wonder if they were going for that because, um, you know, it's her kind of idea of foreplay, isn't it, to uh get dressed up as camouflage bikini, cracking a whip, uh, and then cranking uh, sort of basically uh, playing playing uh, Wagner's Ride of the Valkyries as a, some kind of foreplay, um, which is a kind of uh, I, <laughs> it's not the kind of it's not the kind of music that gets me in the mood. I must admit. So it doesn't work for you the way it works for them. Well, it doesn't really work. For, they don't really get to get, get down and get dirty, do they? Really. Yeah, I think the reason it works for them is because it was public domain, I'm guessing. <laughs> yes, very probably, yeah. <laughs> so again, I mean, this is the, I mean, just the, the, that back to the classic campfire scene. I kind of, I'm trying to think, I'm trying to think of any other, you know, by 1988, uh, you know, after this, were there many slasher movies that would have done this? Because certainly, I, I kind of guess, was it Friday the 13th Part 2 was the first? I know The Burning was kind of coincidental. I mean, they all do it. I mean, they don't necessarily, I mean, sit around a campfire, but they all give that exposition, uh, you know, talking about the legend. Someone died in this house. Someone uh, did a massacre in this house. Uh, it's just their locations always swap. Although, as we all know, the best around the campfire story is from Don't Go in the Woods. <laughs> huh? Yes. I'm a, do you I'm, smell something? Am I right in thinking that at least this one there isn't and nobody jumps up with a mask on and gives everyone a jolly good scare? Because that was the that was the old standby, wasn't it? Yeah, it's kind of weird though that it doesn't happen. Yeah, but I you know I say we are obviously we're we're poking a bit of fun at this, but we are sort of big fans of slasher movies. Obviously, otherwise we wouldn't have dedicated over ten years, and in my case, twenty five years almost of writing about them. I think 10 years looking for background on this film. <laughs> well, I think we've done all right so far. Um, but, uh, 
but yeah, it's kind of it's it's that kind of last hooray almost of the eighties, a slasher movie that it's kind of, I you know, it is. I mean, when was I mean Friday Thirteenth was nineteen May nineteen eighty it was released, so this is kind of eight years after. Although, um, or no, I think well the the date for this release was eighty nine. Um, but uh, I mean, given that it was filmed on sixteen millimeter uh, and kind of blown, well, I don't know if it was ever blown up to thirty-five millimeter. Because as far as I'm aware, I don't know if this ever got a cinema release um, uh, in the US. I certainly didn't in the UK. Uh, whether or not got release uh, to theaters abroad, I don't know. Do you know anything about that, Joseph? Well, my understanding was that American cinema market uh, marketing uh, apparently acquired titles. Um, this one included for international distribution only. Um, though my research on that is a little spotty, the IMDb says that the film got a stateside cinema release via ACM, but not according to their mission statement from a defunct website that I read. Um, and the only known instance of a screening here was that apparently at the American Film Market in 1989 that may have been um, trying to uh, when they were trying to sell it to VHS. I don't know. Um, yeah, I just don't think this got a cinema release here. Like, you know, certainly I couldn't even find anything regionally. No, I mean, certainly with these kind of regional slashers, um, sometimes they would get a regional release in limited markets. And sometimes one of the things they used to do back then would release it for a week in one cinema somewhere. And then when it went to video for the, they could say theatrically released as a, as a way of kind of giving it some kind of cachet or, or, or so. But, uh, uh, yeah, it didn't, it's, it seemed to have sunk with, without a trace and say even the video release in the United States was relatively limited. And I mean, that's judging by how expensive the, uh, used VHS, uh, are now. So, um, so again, yeah, it's just fantastic to see these movies as they were meant to be seen back in the day, nicely cleaned up. Yeah, we have a um, uh, a friend of uh, ours named Jake Helgren, who's a, a director out in Hollywood now. Um, in the late '90s or the early 2000s, he posted a photo of himself uh, in front of his uh, horror film collection, is mostly VHS, and he had that Moonstalker box, and I was so jealous at the time. Because I had spent years trying to find this film and I could not find it. And I, I had to rely on that stupid dub I got offline. And, oh, Jake, if you're listening to this, I still envy you. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. It's a bit of a bit of a kind of a holy grail. Um, one actress we haven't mentioned is Anne McFadden as Vicky, who, who's kind of rocking, which almost looks more of a, like an early 1980s um, knitted headband, pink headband. But uh, I'm sure that wasn't intentional, not back to uh, Friday the 13th Part 2. But uh, she, again, she's not uh, incredibly difficult to dig up any information about her. She was um, she was in, uh, in the film after it's called Rich Girl with Jill Sholin, who was, of course, in uh, a number of kind of sort of uh, sort of she was in The Stepfather, wasn't she? And uh, Popcorn. Was it when Strange Cutting Calls Cutting Class? Mm, Cutting Class, of course, yeah. So she was at a, a mini run as a kind of bit of a, for one better term, a screen queen in the early 1990s. But um, She also had the worst haircut in When a Stranger Calls Back. Yes, indeed, indeed. But Well, you can't make that statement until you've watched Deadly Love. <laughs> I meant for Jill Shulin. Oh, okay. I mean, this is one of the the characters here that um, is about to go off with Pamela Ross for a kind of a, a kind of ball shrinkingly cold shower, 
um, who I kind of guess he was, I think he's, he's down as being listed, I think as Chet, uh, uh, and he's got such a gen- relatively, and apologies to you, Joseph, but it's uh, a very generic name with Joseph Christopher, which um, is kind of impossible to dig up any information on. He just, I couldn't find anything. I don't know if you guys could. Well, he, um, I envy him having the Christopher because my middle name is not generic and I hate it. So kudos to him. Yeah, I'm not saying your name's generic. It's just unfortunately when, when people have names like Susie with a Z, it's a little bit easier to find information about them. I'm so generic. <laughs> I've just realized who Joe Below reminds me of, because it's in this film, not in his other ones necessarily, but he reminds me a bit of Peter Barton from Hell Night and, and Friday the 13th, part four. He's definitely no? got that kind of uh, that clean cut uh, mm. sort of thing. Although, I mean, when it, his character in Hitcher in the Dark is actually quite sleazy, isn't it? Yeah, he's the bad guy, yeah. Mm. So, uh, yeah, sort of playing against type. I did see uh, something that, that kind of made me laugh, that um, the, the the his kind of, well, I kind of guess for one of a better purpose, I mean, they, they kind of throw in this kind of love story, don't they, here with Jill Fors and Joe Below. But apparently, and I don't know if this is true, but um, you can see them walking away together, that she was very tall. And uh, I don't know if they were joking when they said they had to dig little ditches for her to stand in. So, um, uh, so she didn't over, over sort of tower over him like Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman. Yeah, I was about to say um, maybe they Tom Cruised him up with some lifts or something. Possibly, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, one of the things I do. I mean, we're getting ahead of ourselves here, but that the my favorite. And Tom Cruise, if you're listening, please don't sue us. <laughs> I think the chances are quite slim. But, uh, yeah, one of my favorite things, I think, again, with that other comedy element, what I do love about this movie is that it could go into... Um, I'm not a massive fan of the horror comedies that came in the wake of the slasher movie boom, like uh, The Student Bodies and Pandemonium. They have their charms, but I'm not... You know, they're not my kind of thing. And I'm in hand on heart. I, I, can't, I can't stand the scary movie movies either. Um, so, but I do like the slasher movies when they have that kind of... Um, that kind of uh, vein of dark comedy running through them. And I do love that kind of where they very playfully did that whole, the whole trope of them, uh, the, uh, the final girl, uh, or the characters finding their dead friends uh, and the end of this movie, when they're all kind of, uh, they're all kind of um, uh, kind of tied together on this kind of sort of uh, human centipede, not quite human. Well, you can imagine if it's like human centipede, that'd be terrible, but <laughs> it's kind of on a log where they're, they like marionettes to sort of try and attract people to uh to, to come together with the with the um uh the, the cassette player playing i think it was not tyra yellow ribbon what was it um, um we'll be coming around the mountains i think it, it was yeah. yeah yeah when you're talking about stuff like student bodies and wacko they they go for more of the sight gags and here i think the humor is very gallows humor yes yeah I mean, just a scene like this, it, it, how can you take that seriously? It's just so absurd. Well, I think all the humor just hinges on the macabre. Yeah. I love it. But yeah. I, I must admit, the um, I, it's funny, actually, some of the behind-the-scenes stuff, some of the gore effects actually look better than what was left in. Because uh, certainly those um, Ingrid of Old's um, severed legs look like um, pipe cleaners in boots. Yeah. That's the, uh, the the scene we were talking about with the axe to the chest. That looked really good. I mean, the wound looked real. The blood pumping out and pulling just below the wound. It was fantastic. 
I hate that. I hate that they, you know, excise that. Yeah. Well, I say we don't know why. I mean, the special effects, um, they kind of said that they, I think there must have been some problem with special effects uh, they kind of hinted at um, because they actually said the film had very few special effects. But in fact, a guy called Kenneth Balls was did the special effects and he went he didn't do much after um much after the late 90s but he actually went on to work on some blockbusters like batman and robin in 1997 so i uh, you know so i mean i think for you know for a low budget uh movie and especially with that the severed head uh with the black felt around it you know it just it was making uh effective low budget special effects you know and they're always fascinating <laughs> to see them now, would you say from Moonstalker to Batman and Robin, is that a step up or a step down? Hmm. The jury is out. <laughs> yes. Have you you kind of noticed? I mean, it's just the the snow comes and goes, doesn't it? On this, so they must have had a you know said continuity issues about trying to uh, do a movie um, where you kind of keep everything crystal clean. Because uh, so we've just seen the two characters walking along, and I don't think there's any snow. And then uh, when you see the next, uh, where the infamous um uh raging river the raging river scene the peril is just unpalpable yeah one um, thing i'm sorry eric go ahead no no, you go ahead no i was just gonna say one thing i've noticed about this movie um a lot of the colder slasher films especially something like madman they're very backlit you know twisted nightmares very backlit but for some reason this one's all frontlit you can see shadows it's kind of distracting almost I'm right in thinking though, because the um, the cinematographer for this is Michael Goy, um, who uh, he said that I think he said that it was incredibly difficult movie to shoot because I think they only had one light or one outside light they could use. Uh, so I think this was I'm not if it's his first movie, but it, I mean he's gone on. Uh, he's now a four time Emmy nominee, uh, uh, most recently for American Horror Story. Uh, and he's oh. also and he's also the former president of the American Society of Cinematographers. So um, oh. I think Moonstalker was his very first. Um, he was a director of photography uh, on on this, and it was his very first movie. So I think he was he was friends with the director, from what I've read. Yeah, he started out. Sorry, Justin. Just he started out as a, as a sound man, uh, and he worked with Michael O'Rourke and his wife on a project they were doing in 1984, which sounds kind of fun. They were redubbing the 50s horror movie, The Hideous Sun Demon. They were re- putting a new soundtrack on it, a new comedic soundtrack on it. Uh, so they were getting people in to do a new voiceover, including um, Jay Leno in a pre-fame role. He was one of the voices on this sort of redux of the hideous sun demon and Susan Terrell as well was in it. Uh, So that's how he met uh, Michael O'Rourke and uh, then he branched out into cinematography from sound. And yeah, this this, this was his first gig. (laughs) I'm sitting here criticizing the lighting and stuff and he's got all these uh, accolades and awards. Touche, salesman. Well, we all start somewhere and we just just saw the the Raging Rapids um, stunt which obviously was a very dangerous stunt of uh, Jill Fours and Joe Below uh, saving themselves from the, the grass of the, uh, the, the Nevada rapids there. Well, they were they were quite self-deprecating about that scene um, in interviews. They said that, uh, you know, it was meant to be perilous and it was supposed to be a raging river, but, you know, the, the time and the money wasn't there to do that. So it was just a puddle. <laughs> Savage waters right there. 
and we just saw Pamela Ross and uh, Chet uh, being uh, off there. I, it kind of looked. I think it, I, someone else pointed out that it looked like uh, the uh, the killer could have um, uh, basically chopped off his dong with that axe. So um, it obviously the killer has some kind of affection for uh, targeting male members in this, or very in a very kind of uh, splash of blood kind of way, rather than uh, kind of Herschel Gordon Lewis uh, tongue pulling kind of way. And what happens to uh, Pamela Ross's character? Is it like acid, or is it just scal- uh, scalding hot water? I think it was scalding hot water, wasn't it? Okay. It was that was it was meant to be. So. Uh, does the killer um, does the killer have an actual motive in this film, or is he just crazy? No, they say that because he used to live on the grounds where this camp is now, and so he just he just kills anyone that that encroaches on his home, basically. Yeah, I guess kind of like a madman type. Yeah, like just like Jason, I suppose. Yeah. And apparently, Joe Below wasn't very keen on doing this tighty whitey scene. But uh, he he did it, and they uh, talking in cinematography. This this isn't this is there was no fire. The fireplace apparently in this was kind of built from polystyrene. I think it was set. There was and uh, there was no fire inside. Obviously, a polystyrene fireplace is not probably the best uh, prop to have. So there was no fire. This is this is all lit from uh, from kind of camera trickery and light. Yeah, well, I worked on a film once, and this is like thirty years ago. And to get a fl- this flame effect, we had an orange filter over light, and then a few of us waved our hands over the light to give the flicker effect. Ah, see, that's mm. the secrets of the industry, Eric. Yes. And boy, it, you know, it must have been... It's obviously cold, because there's one, the one part where... Uh, our, uh, the one night Joe Abernathy was out in... Uh, or, I'm sorry, Ernest Abernathy was out in Reno, and you can actually see uh, they have a, like a, a clock, and it has the temperature on it. It was like 21 degrees. Which to me and Eric sounds balmy. Yes, yeah, but that you're talking Fahrenheit, so yeah, that is cold. Now this guy, yeah, he 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 has he reminds me of the I can't think of the actor's name. He's very famous from the Incubus, John Cassavetes. Looks like the Moonstalker doled out some three pronged sperm. <laughs> I just want to quickly mention the um, the the diminutive uh, sheriff here. Uh, I haven't got the actress's name to hand, but apparently she was half an inch um, above being classed a midget. Sam Williams is her name. Ah, okay, okay. So uh, she's funny. So, I mean, I think uh, Neil Kinsella is. I think his character's Taylor, who's got that very much that kind of Columbo um, sort of look about him, isn't he? Mm-hmm. It's you could expect and say, and one more thing at any moment. Um, he also, I, I do love the way that he manages to um, survive being impaled right through. The, I know, this is, uh, yeah, I, the logic of slasher cinema. Mm. He's also the first assistant director on this film, so he was good friends with Michael O'Rourke, and um, he'd worked with them before. He'd done second unit on Tales from the Dark Side again. Uh, but yeah, he was the first assistant director on this film, as well as having this I suppose meaty role, considering he's coming into the film, uh, you know, at the seventy-minute mark. Yeah, yeah, it's like you say, he was. Um, he he did some tales of the dark side, uh, and he, um, uh, you know, I think he's quite. He's got fun in this sort of situing scenery. Um, I think he uh, passed away in two thousand and fifteen. So and again, he's one of the cast members no longer with us, sadly. 
I think they also. How do you guys think hmm. this stacks up against other like snowbound slashers and like Iced and I know Shredder was one, but that was of course you know not in the eighties. Um, is there any other snowbound ones that I'm missing here that are slasher slashers? I know there's stuff like um, Cold Prey and the sequels. Ghostkeeper. Ghostkeeper. Mm-hmm. That's what I was trying to think of. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And also, of course, I mean, there's there's lots. There's quite a few in the curtains. Um, oh yeah, curtains. The, that's the fan, a good one. The fantastic scene with Leslie Donaldson um, uh, ice skating, uh, yeah. and also Satan's Blade is another one that of has, course. has yes. the kind of uh, the this sp- one kind of reminds me of Satan's Blade in a way. Mm. Yeah, this Satan's Blade and Ice all have the same kind of feel to me. The same sort of level of filmmaking. I, that's not a disparaging remark, by the way. But yeah, yeah I just th- call it. I just call it regional. They just yeah. have that regional mm. feel. Yeah. Yeah. Of those, though, um, Curtains would be my favourite of the Snowbound Slashers, I think. Yeah, I think, when, when was Iced? Was that... 89, was it? Yeah, it's 1989. I mean, it has that kind of... Uh, again, it's it feels... Um, we talked about it with, on, on other commentaries, but the sort of the trajectory of the slasher movie that you kind of buy... Uh, sort of 1984, it kind of petered out as a kind of a cinematic kind of force uh, and moved more to home video. And that this is, I kind of imagine, given the aspect ratio this is filmed at, this is probably in, originally intended as uh, rather than a cinema release, but certainly uh, um, a release destined for, for home video, um, where you could make an awful lot of money with movies like this. Uh, so I, it's kind of um, it's, it's so something like uh, um, Iced is kind of has that kind of silliness to it, and again, I don't mean it in a disparaging way, but it's a fun way. I mean, it's the kind of movie that ends with the killer hiding inside a snowman. So you kind of you know by that by that time, the audiences are pretty sophisticated as far as kind of knowing, or certainly kind of they knew what to expect with a slasher movie. So part of the joke. Uh, for what a better term was uh, watching these, it was kind of knowing what was coming. They'd seen it so many times before. So having these kind of twists on the formula um, and a kind of a nod and a wink was something that I think the audiences very much enjoyed. I, you know, and I certainly did when I was watching these kind of movies back in the in the late 1980s. And I've, I certainly, I, for me, I've always kind of preferred the movies from the early 80s, the kind of classic slasher movies. Um, and I kind of, I had a, not a problem, but I didn't like these movies much. But as, you know, in recent years, I've definitely warmed up to them a lot. You know, uh, I think, you know, it's a lot of, uh, a lot of fun. I mean, I, I kind of guess... You know, I you know, I can't really compare this to say The Shining. Obviously, Sandy Kubrick's Shining, but again, and I wouldn't necessarily. It's a slasher movie, although it's certainly got some elements of uh, that was around at that time, in the early nineteen eighties. Um, but I do wonder if um, the the people making this ever wondered if they were making The Shining or a Shining esque type movie. Probably not. I mean, if you look at the behind the scenes, it doesn't look like they think they're making a. A shining kind of movie, but no. I can say the fun that it looks like they're having is infectious. That's why I said I wish I was there, but I would have only been eight, so I probably couldn't have drank any beer. <laughs> Boo. <laughs> I mean, it kind of like I kind of guess a spiritual kind of um, successes to movies like this and Iced were films like Jack Frost, uh, literally the Killer Snowman movies. Uh, so around this time but i mean mm. i mean let's compare it to some of the kind of horror movies that were coming out uh the year this was released i say it was made in 88 but obviously 
Um, the the release date it seems to be eighty nine. Uh, so I mean other movies that are sort of coming out around this time where you obviously had the slasher juggernauts of Halloween five and Nightmare on Elm Street 5, uh, The Dream Child, uh, coming out. But I kind of say the films that had a kind of similar feel to this were certainly films like uh, Phantom of the Mall, Eric's Revenge, uh, Psycho Cop, uh, Sleepaway Camp 3, Teenage Wasteland. Uh, they definitely all have that. Oh. Don't you think they've all got that kind of feel to them, that kind of slightly um, satirical but kind of knowing uh, popcorn, low-budget fun feel to them? And Intruder, too, right? Wasn't that the same time frame as well? It was. Mm -hmm. And also... I AKA mean, it, uh, The Final Checkout, not Crew, The Final Checkout, which is a fantastic 80s title. So. Indeed. Sort of like with this one, like, um, not that I would necessarily say fantastic title, but I really love the title mm -hmm. Camper Stamper. It's very catchy. I mean, as you said, Moonstalker doesn't tell you really uh, camper stamper sort of encapsulates the spirit of the film a bit more than moonstalker and you watch the film there's insert shots of the moon but i mean literally you could take those moon shots out of this film and it would make no difference so yeah camper stamper is a much better much more fitting title how does this how is this killer so effective when he can barely walk Answers on a postcard. It does look like he's walking home from a bar after having ten beers. It does. Yeah. Did it surprise you guys that he wasn't a wisecracking killer? Because just from his getup here and everything, it just looks to me like he would be like one of those killers, you know, like Freddy Krueger spouting out one-liners and stuff like that. It kind of surprised me that they didn't go that route. Well, this is... If this was filmed in early 88, this was peak Freddy Krueger, so they're probably missing a trick by not making him wisecracking. Although, in retrospect, I'm glad they didn't. Yeah. yeah. Well, especially... You could have said stuff like, I want to ask you a question. <laughs> well, especially when you see Blake Gibbons behind the scenes doing his, um, his kind of faux religious kind of sermon. Uh, you know, so he certainly wasn't shy in coming forward, was he? He was kind of a big character. So I'm sure he would have chewed the scenery if he was kind of uh, did that kind of psycho cop kind of uh, one-liners. I mean, I'm like you. I mean, I I kind of I have fun with them, but I do prefer, you know, my killers uh, sort of silent. Kind of like how you prefer Toya. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. Oh, Justin, um, we're coming up to the puppet scene now. Oh no, well we have a we have to see this kill first. Um, this chap here uh, who plays Bobby, Alex Wexler, he apparently had to go to another gig. I think he had a, had a stage role to do, so he doesn't appear in the um, in the marionette sequence singing We'll Be Coming Around the Mountain uh, that we see shortly. Which that marionette sequence is very inventive, in my opinion. I think it probably would have taken, you know, Bernie a while to get all that set up. And he's doing that amongst killing all these people. That That's pretty awesome. And doing it all with a limp. Yeah, yeah. he's walking yeah. at one mile an hour. Yeah. You might think I'm crazy, but this kind of this movie now that I think about it reminds me of a, a, a bit of a higher budget um, Blood Lake. What makes you say that? Just the way the killer moves, just the way the killer acts. He acts a lot like that killer, and you get the campers um, who are kind of you know larger than life. But there's just no little Tony. Yeah. Thankfully. Thankfully, yes. 
I did hear that there was, um, I mean, uh, there's, you know, always looking for those kind of lost slasher movies and not that Moonstalker was a lost slasher movie by by any stretch. Although, as we mentioned, it was a very difficult movie to see uh, back in the day, uh, pre pre the Internet. Um, but this apparently this could have been a, a lost slasher movie because there was almost a revolt on set when the money ran out. Uh, apparently there was, uh, towards the end of the shoot, uh, the money ran out and uh, there was kind of, um, there was almost revolt uh, on set. So it could have got to the point, of, I, th- I presume they found enough money to pay everyone to finish finish it off. Um, but uh, yeah, if if it had if that hadn't have happened, then it could have joined the the ranks of some of those shadowy slasher movies that are possibly still out there, half made somewhere. See, now I could see something like Moonstalker coming to light in twenty twenty two as a lost film. You know, I could embrace it. I could say, you know, it's not great, but you know, I I I don't think it deserves to be lost. Um, but unfortunately, we also have some of the films like Night of the Dribbler coming out instead yeah there's some films i've not seen that one so i can't really comment on (laughs) it neither have i oh my goodness it's it's so terrible well uh, now you've you've nixed any chance of us doing a commentary for it i would i I refuse to do a commentary (laughs) for that film (laughs) i think to to mention the jill falls here who can avoid she sometimes jill four uh uh, she didn't do go on to do much. I think she's, it's a shame because I think she's a kind of likable sort of character in this. Uh, apparently, she had um, uh, she had a, a family and sort of left the industry. Um, she was in a few things. She was in a film called Night Wars uh, in 1988 uh, and uh, had a brief kind of career on stage. Um, in uh, she was in a kind of an AIDS uh, drama called Encore. Um, which, uh, unlike many of the kind of uh, kind of AIDS re- sort of related dramas and films at the time, took themselves very seriously. Apparently, this was a bit of a wrong-headed kind of um, uh, play about uh, a woman uh, who falls in love with a gay man with AIDS but doesn't know. So it's a bit of a comedy of errors, which kind of sounds a bit wrong-headed. It does sound a bit wrong-headed, but it sounds intriguing. Well, yeah. bizarrely, I, I found this review of... It was called Encore, and um, uh, I'm talking about wrong-headed. The review, uh, when they reviewed her in it, I think this is the LA Times. I might be wrong on that. So um, uh, they describe her as a tall, animated brunette, and she has a figure of a professional runway model with the face of little Bo Peep, which seems <laughs> like a... You can't... It's a strange uh, way of judging someone uh, in any way, but uh, certainly in a, a play that's relating to AIDS in the early 19, uh, 1990s. You know, this movie kind of does um, something that Eric has mentioned before that he likes in slasher movies in that the main characters until the very end of the movie are not aware of any danger, whereas, you know, there's a lot of... Uh, you know, late 80s slasher movies where, you know, the characters are aware of the danger and are trying mm. to band together to fight back, which I like those as well, for sure. But yeah, this one d- definitely goes the route of, you know, people don't really know they're in danger till they encounter the killer. Yeah. I mean, you I could love- argue, you could argue that most of the Friday the 13th films do that. They do. That's why I love, that's why I love the Friday the 13th formula. And anything that sticks to that formula gets kind of a thumbs up for me because I just like the idea that I just like sort of the carefree 
summer camp counselors just doing their thing for 80 minutes and then discovering that all their friends have been killed. Yeah, uh, because if you got the characters who know they're in danger, they're going to bicker and yeah. it's going to get under your skin. When, they're, when they don't know, they're more bubbly and carefree and you can really, you know, kind of get, get in with the characters that way. This is it. It's also easier to split them up that way without them looking completely ridiculous. Yeah. Absolutely, yes. Oh, I just love this scene so much. Mm. It's a very, yeah, it's a very shocking moment. So is this woman who's hanging from the tree, is she the one that's causing the swing to move? I guess so. I guess so. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Unless he has a little motor attached or something. It's quite an inventive little scene. I mean, it's obviously re- referring to, uh, say, all the, the tropes of the, uh, uh, usually the final girl, uh, you know, going back to Jamie Lee Curtis, finding all her friends dead in that bedroom. Yeah, or a happy birthday to me, finding all the friends arranged around the table. And uh, That was yeah. a great throw. That was Fatal Games style throw. Yes. <laughs> it's like Dexter- <laughs> it's Dexterity Bob up there. <laughs> I still didn't kill him, though. No, it doesn't. He survives at the end of the movie, as we see in the back of the ambulance. Bizarre. One movie that, um, that it did remind me of, we haven't spoken about, uh, is uh, Madman as well from 1982, because that has that whole the campfire and the, uh, the you know the the killer, the legend, and obviously the legend lives and all that kind of thing uh, going on in it as well. But it also has that kind of that kind of um, that uh, sort of winter style, and it has somebody hiding in a fridge. Yes, indeed, it does. A very unforgettable hiding place. How well do you think she works as the final girl when faced with the killer? I mean, to me, she does, you know, a lot of the classic, you know, final girl moves, getting behind closed door, grabbing a weapon. Mm, this is quite Amy Steele here, you were saying, Justin. Um, but uh, <laughs> she does kill the female deputy here. <laughs> Oops. The deputy should have announced herself. She should yeah, have, really. Yeah, cops go through the why, door why? like police officers, and she why does is... not... Why is she trying to... Yeah, why does she have an accent? Yeah, I don't know. Too many questions. Yeah, not many answers. But again, it's it's the filmmakers being playful, as we were saying. It, it, this is sort of the dark humour of the film. Oh man, you better run. So what would you think if there was uh, Moonstalker 2? What would you... Because obviously the film leaves it open for a sequel, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. What would you like to have seen that, Nathan? Because one of the things you used on the podcast, wasn't it? It was your kind of after yeah. credits. Well, I definitely want to see Debbie come back because, you know, at the end of the movie, I get, you know, we, we see her in the ambulance and she's like completely insane. Sort of like Dana Kimmel in Friday the 13th Part 3 or um, Sally um, from Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Um, you know, they, they all kind of went a little crazy at the end. Um, I would like to have seen her recuperate in the hospital, maybe come back to this area to face her fears with like a group of her friends that's going to help her. But Bernie's still around and he shows back up 
and I'm not having him do some wisecracks this time around. <laughs> I'd have him like, you know, over time, he just kind of gained a personality. You know, he kind of um, tried to, uh, you know, tried to blend with, you know, normal people. Um, you know, his dad's dead now, so he don't have that kind of hanging over him. So, yeah, I think he would go after her and her group of friends, and I think that she would face her fears and this time probably kill him for real. It's a very heartfelt reaction. Well, I liked her, and, um, you know, I, I felt bad at the end because she, you know, obviously went, like I said, went crazy from the, you know, the nightmare that she went through. So, you know, I'm like, hmm. That stinks. I want to see, you know, my final girls, you know, happy at the end of the movie. Well, I don't know if there are many slasher movies where the final girls actually just happy at the end. I'm like, oh, yay, I lived. <laughs> now, that is, that is true. <laughs> <laughs> I, Me personally, I think I just want to see Bernie stalking astronauts on the moon. So then the title makes sense. <laughs> Very good. Burning in space. Yeah. You see, I want to do a direct. I want to do a direct sequel where it picks up where this one leaves off. Maybe Halloween two style in the hospital. But I want the microwave, which was kind of pivotal in the early part of the film, to make a reappearance, and that's how she kills Bernie with the microwave, like an evil laugh. Yeah, that's the thing. She put his head in it. Yeah. Now, these two people here apparently owned the, the Willow Creek Ranch Inn. And this is their little cameo in the film. Yeah, yeah. So I, I can, you can tell they're, they're not actors, but it's kind of yeah. a fun little cameo, isn't it? <laughs> now, some of the... Um, one of the uh, interesting, just kind of tiny little cameos here, really, but one of the uh, paramedics who turns up is a guy called Carl Solomon. Um, and uh, he was in he was in a number of kind of movies around this uh, this time. He's in the Exe- Executioner Part Two. Um, he also had a very tiny blink and you miss it kind of role in Crimes of Passion. Uh, but he went on to I don't know if he's well he's involved. Not she's he felt he um, di- I think he's uh, directed uh, and maybe appearing in some movies. Uh, some of the Amateurville horror um, sort of it seems I don't know if Am- the Amateurville series has fallen into uh, public domain, but apparently he's involved with a film called Amateurville Karen, an Amateurville Shark House, <laughs> an Amateurville Bigfoot. Amateurville Karen. Yeah, and I think he may have directed a movie in 2022 called Cheer Bloody Murder about cheerleaders attending a cheer camp that's stalked by a masked murderer. So uh, definitely uh, going around, uh, you know, going around to his old stomping grounds there. You know, I might have had at the end that Bernie was driving that ambulance. Would have had a very hide-and-go-shriek or a cheerleader camp style Let's get New Year's Evil. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, guys, the important thing is that the nightmare is over. That camp is safe once again. Or is it? <sighs> dun, 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 dun. <laughs> yes. It's a shame, though, if Kelly Mullis had turned up now in a pink high heel, she wouldn't have had too much problem. Yeah, <laughs> the snow is gone. Yeah. Look how much traffic there is out there. They weren't that far from civilization, were they? No, not at all. That's just a long way to run in the snow. It is, that's true. 
Oh, well, it's just the Thor has come. So, uh, yeah, Moonstalker. Uh, I, I agree. I think Camper Stamper would have been a funner title to have kept. But, uh, but um, yeah. So any final thoughts on Moonstalker? My only final thought is earlier you guys were mentioning, like, the heating inside the tents. Yeah. And I just wanted to say, I bet the heating was intense. Oh, dear. <laughs> oh, the humanity. Oh, the humanity, yes. Well, those weren't quite the kind of closing thoughts I was uh, was hoping for. But thank you, Nathan, anyway. Um, Thank you. So, uh, yeah. So, well, again, thank you to Vinica Syndrome for allowing us to to, uh, talk over one of their movies. Uh, So, um, yeah, well, not much else to say apart from uh, thank you for listening to us. We are collectively The Hysteria Continues. Uh, and if you've enjoyed what you've heard here and you've heard us before, then we have a kind of bi-monthly, bi-monthly, bi-weekly um, uh, podcast uh, talking all good things and all things bad slasher. So uh, do check us out on all good and very, very bad podcatchers. So uh, thanks for listening and say goodbye to the good people. Bye. Bye. Goodbye. Bye.